I don't know what I'm trying to visualize. So instead of trying to visualize the insight, I'm actually trying to visualize the data and the story. This episode is sponsored by Car2DB. Car2DB is an open, powerful, and intuitive platform for discovering and predicting the key facts underlying the massive location data in our world. With Car2DB, you can design and analyze beautiful and insightful maps. Check out incredible location intelligence projects and get started for free at car2db.com gallery. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. Hey Moritz, what's up? Hey Enrico, um, summertime and I'm preparing my trip to the US, so I'll be touring oh, yeah. the US uh, <laughs> in three weeks, starting on Sunday. So I'm excited, yeah. You are touring. Yeah, and you know this thing when you have a big presentation to give and yeah. then... Um, you really want to nail it, and then you start rewriting old flash-based web applications instead? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I did this week, so <laughs> good for me. Um, yeah. Presentation should be fine, too. Yeah. Uh, I just had to redo the Twitter visualization I, I did uh, the oh, last I few years at IO. Yeah, I so love I had that to, one. I had to rebuild it. What can I do? So. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So where are you going? You are going to IO? Uh, Minneapolis. Um, Minneapolis, yeah. Vancouver, San Francisco, and Boston. Nice. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. How about you? What are you up to? Um, good. Enjoying summer a little bit. Still a lot of work to do, but it's fine. I'm done with teaching, which is good. Um, I just have a brief update. I'm, I'm really happy about a recent... Uh, project. Um, I don't know if I've ever mentioned that on the podcast, but we are working with ProPublica and uh, developing some software to help them look into millions of reviews from, from Yelp. And they just published their second article based on the analysis that they conducted with uh, with this tool. And I'm, I'm really excited. Some of the stuff that we do is, is actually useful, <laughs> at least to some people <laughs> within ProPublica. So they've been analyzing um, Yelp reviews uh, to actually look into privacy issues and the fact that doctors sometimes reply to reviews, customer reviews, and disclose information that they are not allowed to, to, to disclose. So mm -hmm. it's, it's serious stuff. Very good. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. So fun. Uh, you will put the article in the show notes, yeah? I will, of course. Absolutely. Very nice. So yeah. I'll read it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So let's start with our new guest today. Um, I'm really excited to have Matt Daniels on the show from Polygraph. Hey, Matt, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So uh, Matt is the is the main person behind Polygraph, and um, he publishes amazing. Um, how do you call that? I mean, interactive uh, articles with visualizations and data analysis. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly, a, a lot of them on music, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited, but also many other topics, including, I don't know, gender biases and, and stuff like that. So, Matt, can you give us a little bit of uh, an introduction about who you are, what you do, um, maybe even why you do it, and then we can move on to a couple of projects we want to talk about. Sure. Yeah, so I started coding pretty heavily about a year and a half ago, and uh, before then I'd always published you know, weird things on the internet. Uh, I always just had side projects on top of my full-time job, and 
around February of 2015, I, t- I stopped doing them as side projects and started doing them full time. So I uh, invested heavily in just learning how to code. And instead of just doing these small side projects, uh, spending you know my, my waking hours just doing one project at a time, rather than dividing my time between a full time gig and, and hobbies uh, nights and weekends. And then, yeah, so I've been doing these side projects and publishing them on my personal site, essentially like amatdaniels.com. Uh, and then about six or seven months ago, uh, I started another site uh, so that it could, you know, grow bigger than myself and and have a little bit more serendipity in terms of how the, the stories could be larger than, than the individual pieces uh, and turn to just a, a broader idea. Um, so I just registered domain, Polygraph. And then have been making things ever since. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let me just ask you this. So this means that you started coding, what, one year ago or so? Uh, I did my first real JavaScript project uh, roughly February of 2015, yeah. Wow. I mean, when I look at what you do on the web, it's, it's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't take long to learn coding <laughs> no, so it's, no. uh, <laughs> it's so easy <laughs> it's so easy. <laughs> no because you know i mean i'm saying that because you have those people who are like, who are like do i need to learn coding in order to do mm. visualization well m- not necessarily but if you do i mean you have so many more options <laughs> so yeah, i yeah. think it's <laughs> you are a good uh, good story to tell <laughs> um yeah <laughs> So, Matt, I, I would like to dive into um, a couple of projects we selected um, directly. Uh, you have many, many more, and I really encourage our listeners to just go to your website, which is poly-graph.co, uh, and see all the amazing projects you publish there. So we will be focusing on a couple of them. And uh, I would like to start with uh, one about music, and it's called The Most Timeless Songs of All Time. Um, so can you briefly introduce this project and tell us how you, you, you got started there, uh, how you generated the idea, and then how you realized the project? Yeah, this was actually the first project on Polygraph. And by the way, we, we've, we've upgraded the domain to polygraph.cool. No, oh, oh, no, gra- no, no hyphens <laughs> and co's and just way easier to remember. Um, in like water cooler conversation. So, uh, yeah, so the Timeless Project was actually the impetus for, for the site. It was the first project that I decided not to put on my personal blog and, 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 and make it on this new thing. And the, the story behind that project was, and this is like about nine months ago, um, September of 2015, is I was walking down the street listening to, I think, Back, back That Thing Up, uh, <laughs> to keep it safe for work, this podcast uh, by Juvenile. And I was like, this is a good song, but I wonder if uh, like my children's children will like hear the song and think about it as fondly as I think about songs from the fifties, like by Frank Sinatra or Etta James. Well, they like think it's really absurd (laughs) that like this was a thing in the early two thousands. Um, so from there I, I was like, man, it'd be really interesting to see what's still popular today from maybe 10 or 15, 20 years ago as a way to start predicting what is standing the test of time. And will there be an instance where, 
in 2030 or 2040, people will look at our music and, and, and it will be just as much in the zeitgeist as like a Frank Sinatra is today. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of the, the spirit of the project. And then the way it manifested into the article was getting Spotify data for a full year. Um, we used 2014 data since this was published in 2015, late 2015, and looked at what is the most popular music today from the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, 60s, etc. on Spotify, um, which is a really interesting measure when you consider that, all right, music from the 50s is now uh, 65 years old. Like We probably are at a point where it's it's reached a, a stable, like an equilibrium where Yes, our children, our children's children will probably listen to the same 60s music as we did. Um, so, so yeah, so we had a really, we had a lot of interesting trend data um, to work off of. And yeah, that was the spirit of the project. So you can go to the site and look at what is the most popular song from the 90s and also see where uh, Back That Thing Up stands. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm wondering if we can try to describe a little bit how this page looks like. Um, I'll try myself to say something about it. So I think, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, most of your projects have a similar uh, style. You start with a with a big title, some text, then you have some interactive charts, then more text, then more interactive charts. Something I really, really like. And um, and you talk about the data analysis behind it, how you collect the data and provide quite quite a few details. And then you do the analysis itself and describe what this means. So in this case, you have one chart where there are like um, songs um, placed in, in a graph and you can see how many songs from the 90s, right? It's called What's Remembered from the 90s. And you have each song represented by one one dot <laughs> with the face of the singer, main singer behind it. And you can see on the far right, there is uh, Kurt Cobain <laughs> with the most popular song ever. It's what, 50... 50 million, more than 50 millions plays. And, um, yeah, and you have many others on the, on the left. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting, and uh, I think what what I really like of the analysis that you made and the, and how you comment on this is that you you especially in this specific piece you've been commenting on the idea that some there is a difference between um, songs that are still popular today after many years and now they scored back then in uh, in the in Billboard and similar charts right and uh, not necessarily the most popular song back then are those that um, are still popular today. Yeah, that that is, I think that's the most interesting part from a story perspective, um, really ignoring like the visuals for a second, is that there's, there's definitely a tension between what's like past popularity, not necessarily correlating highly with present day popularity. And the implication of that is you can take a, you know, single ladies by Beyonce or a Taylor Swift song and say, okay, that's so culturally pervasive. We can't imagine a world where your grandchildren would, would not know that song. Um, but there are also plenty of examples from the fifties and sixties and seventies where you had effectively the single ladies of, of their day, <laughs> uh, you know, the number one songs that were so pervasive and charted at number one for so long that you couldn't imagine a world where 
people in 2016 would not be listening to it. Um, but there are actually plenty of examples. Then actually the inverse is also true. You have un- arguably like underground songs, kind of like a Lana Del Rey song from today uh, that surely is popular, but but isn't Taylor Swift, Beyonce popular. Um, and, and, and they have actually grown significantly in popularity over time, far outpacing their, um, the popularity that they had when they were released. So a good example of this is uh, Etta James's At Last, uh, which, which actually charted on Billboard, however, did not chart very well, you know, and not, not in the top 10, just for like a week or so, barely registered, and has for some reason or another slowly grown in popularity over time. And I think uh, it, it's now like a, a popular wedding song. There's lots of reasons why it's played so often. Uh, I think it was played at um, one of President, the U.S. President Obama's um, I can't, maybe it was his inauguration. Either way, uh, it's used very often. It's in a lot of soundtracks and a lot of samples. We could argue about why it's still pop, why it's popular today, but regardless, it has gotten more popular. So that, those are the types of interesting trends to find in the charts. And because they're coded, you can look for the songs and look for the trends and see things that I would have never been able to see on my own. And you use the Spotify API for that, for the, for the current plays, right? Is that an API that gives you a lot of access to like the, the low-level data, or did you have to uh, do a lot of tricks to, to extract the relevant information? How is it working with that uh, data source? Uh, Spotify only releases lifetime plays for the top 10 songs for each artist. So uh, this was done via a private data dump from one of their data partners who is now owned uh, by different companies. So <laughs> they kind of severed ties. However, uh, I had access to the data via them, and then they went. And then once the project was finished, uh, we had to go to Spotify and say, "Hey, we made this thing. <laughs> okay. Are you yeah, yeah, yeah. with with your data? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Are you cool with us publishing on the internet?" And they could be like, "Absolutely not. No. Uh, you know, shut it down." Or <laughs> they would be like, "This is great." So they fortunately said, "This is great." And uh, yeah, we went we went public with it. So I mean, in the end, it's a great advertisement for them. So I think they should have paid you some money. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But it's at okay. least yeah, I, you, you get to use the data, so that's that's already yeah. good. Yeah. And but you, you're saying the top ten songs per artist are available, nevertheless. So you could do something similar, but a bit more, like not as complete. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's actually not available via the API, so you ah, have to. Yeah. Go Damn into go to the, the artist app. pages and scrape yeah. everything and yeah. Hey, okay. I, that was my that was V one for me. I spent like a full day just scraping <laughs> scraping air quotes, uh, going to the app and mm-hmm. typing in the plays into a spreadsheet. So once I did that, I had a good idea that the data would be interesting. Um, and then from there, actually went to the uh, data partner and got the real data, right, right. Um, yeah. which was which is actually a mess. It was a very complicated process. It wasn't easy as like, oh, here's the data. Um, believe it or not, like getting plays from out of getting plays for a song like Atlas is a very complex thing. Um, and then uh, the API for Spotify actually has uh, popularity data, but it's indexed to 100. So you can actually do something very similar. It just won't be hard view counts for uh or play counts for the songs yeah so can you can you briefly describe how the 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 process works for instance for for this project right so i guess you start from 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 a question (laughs) and uh then you go about trying to see if you have data to answer this question 
And um, and how do you decide on uh, um, what visualizations to use, how to design the page itself, what is the narrative structure? I mean, it looks to me that you are uh, playing a lot with different ways of um, um, giving a structure to your story. Um, so how do you do that? Yeah, a lot has changed over the past nine months in terms of designing these articles. Uh, with the one that we're talking about, um, generally, I try to avoid any initial analysis. Like, I have an idea of what the data looks like, but I don't re really know what it says until I, I make the chart, um, which is a little bit counterintuitive. Um, I think most people from an anal from a from a data visualization data visualization perspective will do the SQL queries, uh, do the analysis in Excel, run the models, run the regressions, and then have an answer, and then try to visualize the analysis and say, okay, here's the thing that that I think is interesting in the data. Um, so they have an insight and they try to represent that insight uh, via some chart. So I I don't do any of that and. It, it's very problematic in many ways because uh, I don't know what I'm trying to visualize. So instead of trying to visualize the insight, I'm actually trying to visualize the data and the story. Um, so I avoid any SQL queries or Excel analysis. I don't actually know what the data says until I actually see the D3 visualization in the browser. Um, so for for example, if I wanted to visualize the uh, the top 90 songs. I, I mean, this chart specifically was very weird, but um, I didn't know what would be number one. I mean, I had an idea. I, I peaked, but <laughs> I didn't know what would be number two and number three until the chart was made. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is this is interesting. Look how far number one is from number three. Um, or I would make the chart, and I it would be like maybe a boring table, and I'd be like, oh, here's what's number one, number three, but it's really not that. I don't, I don't see anything interesting in this. So I would try another chart until I really see something interesting um, in terms of how uh, what the variance is among among the top 50, which is really high for, for the 90s songs on Spotify. So really, it's just keep keep trying different visualizations until you see, this, you see answers to your initial question, which was, in this case, what is still popular um, today from past decades. And will you write the text and do the sequencing of the charts afterwards, basically, when you have a good idea of what what seems to be interesting and what seems to be a good way to present the topic yeah the first chart is really the answer to the question because mm -hmm. you expect nobody's going to scroll past the first chart uh which is generally always true yeah um and then the narrative structure is is more of a necessity it's a burden in my mind um i've actually and this is a very divisive um thing that i do as well is i'm trying to kill all pros in my work um, which is which is weird because you you need pros to explain the story, um, but actually I think it's a little bit of a crutch. It means that I I need the pros to explain what the visuals say rather than the visuals to explain what the visuals say. Uh, and I know that yeah, it's but a you can also of, give background or talk about causality behind you know the plain surface information that everybody sees, right? I mean I think that can be yeah. quite valuable. I mean it's Abs a bit pointless absolutely. to say like and as we can see, blah is number yeah. one. You know that's like yeah. Duh. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right. Like it's it's I, in in the in the narrative. I went through exactly what I've talked with you all, which is you have songs that were effectively the single ladies of the '50s that aren't popular today, and it's really it's really hard to say in a chart, uh, and really easy to say in prose. However, uh, I am trying to get to a point where I can carry the story with just visuals and as little sentences as possible. Um, 
from a, from a, from a work standpoint, it is making that first chart, making sure it answers that initial question that I had and then, uh, flushing out the nuances in the question, such as that disparity between historic and present day popularity in, in further charts. And then obviously some pros to, to connect everything together. Uh, yeah. But I, I have to say my, my personal experience reading using your projects is that i really like the text part that you that you produce and especially the the, the sequence right so i i for instance like the fact that you you start from from a clear question and uh, and it's an interesting question then you go about trying to answer that specific one and then you make it broader right and um and another thing I like is that you, you first try to list the facts, what you can read out of the chart, but towards the end of your article, you kind of try to see, to generate hypotheses about um, what phenomenon is behind or what causality exists behind the, the, the facts that you extracted out of data. Um, I don't know if you do this on, on purpose or just you happen to do it this way, but I found it really, really interesting. So, for instance, just to give you an example, in, in the same piece we are talking about, the um, timeless songs, I think towards the end of your article, you talk about um, why does this happen, right? And you come up with, with hypotheses about why does this happen that some... Some songs are popular when they are published, and but still they don't. Um, they are no longer popular after ten or twenty years. And yeah, I found this really interesting. Yeah, that 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 is definitely an instance where I was really happy with the result. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think we're going to talk about another project where I did the exact opposite. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think there's definitely benefits of of reflecting on the visualization and adding. Uh, the expert's opinion on what the charts say, uh, and there's there's and which we'll talk about soon. Um, a big benefit of of on purpose not doing that, and and what that can elicit from the readers and the internet in terms of how they respond to the project. Yeah, yeah, and another aspect I just want to briefly mention that too. You seem to make the charts sometimes. So the, the the first chart typically is the one that tries to answer the narrow question that you started with. But then, as you as you progress, you give more freedom to the reader to explore some aspects on on his own, right? Which is also interesting. I think this is this has been called in the past something like the martini glass structure. So I, I guide you through some some data facts and as soon as you know enough about it, then you are ready to kind of like explore it on your own a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Um, that is a thing I've done on every project, which is uh, not starting with the whole data set. Um, if I were to start off with a chart that is just purely about the present day popularity of older music, and I think the whole data set was tens of thousands of songs, it'd just be an overwhelming visualization. Uh, people would walk into it and say, this is too complex. I don't know what it says. Uh, so I purposefully narrowed the data set just to the 90s, and I've done this on almost every project, um, just to get to it's almost like a, a moose bouche for uh <laughs> for the for the article of like okay i i'm i'm picking up what you're putting down this is an, an uh, this is an article about whether no diggity is still popular today relative to um smells like teen spirit and and that i think 
builds the mental model to then go look at 50,000 songs as play counts by by year and then also their historic billboard data which is again like we're talking about hundreds of thousands of data points but once they have that mental model built with that small chart uh, it's a lot easier to process so you're absolutely right that is that is like a, a a visual trick i've tried to employ on almost all the articles yeah and this framing like starting with the right question or like what what is the entry point to the whole thing can totally make or break these these sort of complex uh projects this is a good time to talk about our sponsor this week this episode of data stories is sponsored by CartoDB. CartoDB is an open, powerful, and intuitive platform for discovering and predicting the key facts underlying the massive location data in our world. And recently they announced to partner with Mapsen to provide location data services, which you can use either inside CartoDB or even license to use in your application. They provide custom base maps, which are customized raster and vector maps supported with worldwide coverage. They also offer geocoding services, so you can turn plain text into location coordinates using the built-in geocoder, and you can custom geocode your data by country, county, or municipality, choose from high-accuracy street addresses, or map your locations by any global postal code. And they also provide routing services, so based on OpenStreetMap's road network data, CartoDB's routing services provide easy driving, walking, and cycling in turn-by-turn directions. And it also includes a cool feature called time and distance isolines, so you can draw on a map how far you can actually get with 20 minutes of walking, for instance, from a given point. With CartoDB, analyzing and designing beautifully insightful maps has never been easier. Check out incredible location intelligence projects and get started for free at cardodb.com gallery. And now, back to the show. There's another one I would like to talk about. Actually, it's two. So it's a, a, a duo of projects, as far as I understand it. So um, you did a look into Hollywood's uh, gender balance or yeah, the gender divide, maybe. And uh, yeah, there's actually two articles uh, on Polygraph related to that. Can you tell us a bit about the, how that story unfolded? Yeah, um, I think we should talk about the latter one, but, but certainly talk about the first one um, as it relates to the latter so the the project started with again a question around the Bechtel test, which is uh, for those not familiar with it, um, started almost as a semi joke from a comic strip uh, uh, written by Alison Bechtel and and another coworker, and they they had this they had this comic strip that was half again a half joke about uh, the the lead in the comic only wanting to see movies that fit three different criteria. Uh, and the criteria are there, there are two women, um, who talk to each other at some point in the movie about, about something other than a man. And there's some additional criteria that, that people have added over the years, but that's, that's the spirit of it. So it seems like a, an embarrassingly low bar, um, that there are two, yeah, any you think point in the movie, any movie easily passes that, right? When easily you hear that, it's like, us. how could there be a movie that, you know, is that at least yeah. once the two women talk about something? Right, right. I mean, how hard can it be, right? Like, how hard can it be? <laughs> Um, well, that's the joke is that, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and the sad, the sad fact of reality is a lot of movies don't pass this test. In fact, there's a site kind of like Wikipedia called bechdeltest.com where you can go and, and Wikipedia-esque, um, crowdsource 
whether movies pass or fail this test. So you could probably go to this site and see any movie that's in the box office today and, and either see its rating or add your own rating. And by rating, I mean whether it passes or fails the test and each of the three criteria. So, uh, so I knew about this test and had a question in my mind that the results of the test were less a function of like systemic sexism and that like we just don't want two women talking to each other about men, uh, but rather most movies are written by men and you would expect uh, a bunch of men in a room to not <laughs> write very uh, inclusive stories from a gender perspective. So the, the question I started with was, uh, if you took all the movies that pass or fail this test, to what extent does is that a function of of the gender of the writers and the producers and the directors? So there was uh, roughly about 5,000 films on BechtelTest.com, scraped all those films, got the results. And yeah, it was pretty obvious. Like when you have at least one woman on the writing team, the rate at which movies pass the test goes up dramatically. And when there's an all women writing team, it's something like 95% of films pass this mm -hmm, test. Mm -hmm. um, when it's just men, it's about 55 or 60% uh, pass the test. So it's pretty obvious. And, and who knows if it's right. Uh, I didn't run any crazy modeling and correlation. I was just like, here's the data. If you want to question the statistic, statistical significance, everything's open source and downloadable and you can do your own modeling. But here's just the high level results for the layperson. And the response to that project was actually pretty embarrassing um, <laughs> from the internet. And, and, and by embarrassing, I mean... So did you most, meet the Reddit crowd or what happened? Oh, I love the Reddit crowd. I, love, I live for Reddit comments. Um, yeah, it was pretty terrible. Uh, I, I don't want to go into depth about exactly what was said, but most people... Uh, the, the reason why the Bechtel test exists in many ways is because uh, th there is a, a well, almost like undercurrent of 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 what is perceived to be poor gender inclusivity in film however uh people perceive that there's reasons for that such as all right we have a lot of war movies and historic movies like are you going to cast all women in saving <laughs> private ryan um and which is a fair uh, point well, in some yeah. ways yeah maybe however 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 uh that's one movie and you know hollywood puts out lots of movies so Uh, what would often happen is we get stuck in the in the discourse of gender inclusivity around these these points of well, what do we do about about war films and you know people pay for movies so if they're paying for all male movies like do we want to um, change the economics and should we censor writers like should we force them to have more gender inclusive movies so it, there was just a lot of things wrong with with the current discourse and what people got hung up on on the Bechtel test was a very biased test. And when you look at like whether movies are pass or fail this test, it's, it's the, the test is so emotionally charged. Um, and, and not only that, it's kind of a crappy test. So you have <laughs> movies like Jurassic world that pass this test, but really don't do anything from like a gender inclusivity perspective, um, for women. So it's a very binary. No, it's like either you pass or fail. I mean, it's as if it wasn't an exam, but I mean, yeah, yeah. So, so again, I, I had a, I had a lot of poor response from the internet on this project, even though I think it did pretty well traffic-wise. 
Um, and the traffic was mostly the echo chamber of people who already were complaining about gender inclusivity. So in terms of improving the discourse on the internet around this no. topic, it really didn't do anything. So just I, had I, more outrage on both sides and a lot of traffic to your side, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what <laughs> a you lot, do, I see. Not, yeah. I, well, I'm not trying to do clickbait. I, <laughs> I think the story was like, can we improve the discourse mm -hmm. around this topic? Yeah. In the same way, uh, you know, very lightly we did that with the timeless music project of can you improve improve the discourse of why music stands the test of time like why do some tracks get lost in in time and, and some get only more popular yeah, and there's so much anecdotal info about this you know everybody comes up with one example or five examples and i think it's exactly. super interesting to look at five thousand and yeah. see how it plays out and i think this is what you do right yeah so the 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 sequel to the bechtel test project was was almost a revenge project i was so <laughs> angry about yeah, the bechtel test project. It's like this time i'm gonna yes. do it right <laughs> yeah i seriously that is that is exactly what happened so i recruited some friends and uh, well, the Bechtel test project was actually done with a woman uh, in film. Mm. So, so that was a collaboration. And then the second project, I brought in another woman um, who's a real engineer. Again, I just taught myself to code a year ago. And she helped out getting the data for the revenge project, which was to kill the Bechtel test as this measure for gender inclusivity and, and, and actually get better data, which we decided would be just looking at raw dialogue by gender. So instead of saying, okay, we're going to have this imaginary test that Alison Bechtel used as a half joke in a comic strip 40 years ago, we're going to have a, a, another way to quantify gender inclusivity um, using just the percent of dialogue from screenplays that are men versus women. So that's, again, not a perfect measure, but in my opinion, way more, uh, uh, way uh a, uh, an improvement over the Bechtel test um, for all the reasons already discussed. So that was the second project and the one I really want to talk about, uh, which is a film dialogue broken down by gender and age. And that project came out a few months or in April and it did really well. And I think uh, is, is also directionally m more of the type of work that I'm hoping to do in the near future. So what did you find? Now everybody wants yeah. to know, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I, I encourage everyone to go look, <laughs> um, which is polygraph.cool slash films. And the, the spirit of, I think the article is just to show the data. And, um, most, a lot of people emailed me and said, well, why didn't you publish a, a result of, okay, you have, I don't know. I don't even know what the number is like 70% male, 30% female. Um, I didn't. I purposely didn't do that. It is a visual of 2,000 films, uh, essentially a histogram of 2,000 films, uh, shaded and plotted by the percent of of men, male dialogue versus versus women, and what you see is basically the the balance very very much weighted towards the male side, and you can actually look at the films. So there's no abstractions. There's no overall percent it is hover over jurassic world and actually see the number and also the character breakdown and, and as much detailed data as we could get so yeah. this was a very very complex project and you can and the compare idea by, by genre uh, you yeah. even looked at the actors ages which i found super interesting like is there a yeah. difference you know how 
how old the different roles are. Spoiler, yeah. women are much younger in films. Uh, and so this is all very interesting. Yeah. I wanted to shut down the anecdotal, well, what about war films <laughs> comments? Because, which are valid, again. Yeah, yeah. But 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 it just like, it was totally anecdotal. Like I would be like, well, yeah, that's fair, but but most movies aren't war films. So this the, the point was to get as quantify and visualize all the data down to number of lines for uh, um, Chris Evans in Jurassic World. I think that's the actor. So we're getting as detailed as possible. So if people want to say, well, what about X? You can go look at that data without knowing how to code and downloading all the data from GitHub. Like every visual is to support any form of exploration that you have in your mind down to like evolution of the data by decade down to uh, just Disney movies. Uh, so, so the purpose of this project was really to almost build a, a, a terminal or a console or um, a, a dashboard for, for this data that otherwise would be stuck in, in, in kind of these abstractions that you typically see in academic studies around gender inclusivity. Yeah, I think that that's an aspect that I really like. I think here you found very nice balance between making the data accessible, right? But at the same time, not trying to impose any specific um, outcome or even a hypothesis, right? I really like, uh, I cut this this sentence from, from your text. You write, we didn't set out trying to prove anything, prove anything, but rather compile real data. We framed it as a census rather than a study. And I really like, I really, really like that. Um, yeah, maybe you can comment yeah. a little bit more on on, on this yeah. kind of mindset. Well, yeah, Reddit Reddit got really angry about that as well. They were like, "How can you publish?" <laughs> now he's trying to sneak out of his responsibility. Yeah, yeah, look at that. yeah. yeah I mean, I, I, it's 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 a fine line, right? Because uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I find that well, this is a little a, a big struggle for people like you spend a lot of time trying to analyze data and make the result of this analysis. Um, digestible by people, right? And at the same time, trying to find the right balance between not imposing your own view, but not making the old thing too hard to to understand that you have to start from scratch, right? If this project was to prove a whether Hollywood is gender inclusive, it would go nowhere. Yeah, because exactly. Yeah. If that's if that's the hypothesis, anyone going into this with any bias is going to be like, "Well, this is total bullshit mm. for X, Y, Z." You can Z always reasons. take that apart. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you analyze pop culture with numbers, right? And this can, this is, I think, is always interesting, and there's always super much to be learned. But it's pretty much impossible, I think, to prove anything cultural like just with numbers. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, exactly. yeah, yeah. there's always like a shortcoming in, or oh, you could also have measured this, or you're not taking into account that, or you know, it's you can just show, yeah, one perspective. I think that's clear. Yeah, yeah. which is why you can't prove anything. Um, so, so, so someone yeah, said, well, still, you some proved- data is better than no data, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Someone had written a like 3000 word comment on Reddit that was picking apart everything. And then the, <laughs> the response to this the comment was so beautiful. It was like, this is, I, this is like death by a thousand nitpicks or, um, <laughs> this is, this is a well-written response that ignores the overwhelmingly glaringly obvious point in the data, um, which is fine. But. But again, like my point wasn't to prove anything. It was that the only data we had around gender inclusivity was anecdotal and the Bechdel test, which is a pretty sad state when we're talking about this in 
in so many forms of of culture around the Oscars are so white uh, in America and and um, the Gina Davis Institute, which is constantly trying to promote more women in director roles. So uh, again, the point of this project was was essentially me acting as a census, uh, as 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 a data gathering um, instrument, and and for that purpose, I tried to avoid any modeling and just present the data. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I have to say, I think here you're doing something really important because, I mean, when you think about what kind of, who are the figures out there who are proposing ideas based on data traditionally, right? On the, on the one hand, you have scientists. On the other hand, you have people like journalists and uh, and politicians, right? And all of them, one way or another, have some kind of agenda or at least an hypothesis to 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 prove right <laughs> or or an intent to persuade you about something and and you're kind of like moving away from that here and still make the data and the ideas behind this data accessible and i find this this format really really interesting that was one of the the top comments from the internet was what is your agenda on this you like, have what no are you agenda to... i guess right <laughs> well yeah yeah i mean i had an agenda of like get the data <laughs> yeah, but exactly. my my agenda wasn't to like overhaul hollywood my my agenda was we're sitting around having anecdotal discussions about a thing that is easily quantifiable and just no one wanted to quantify it and and there's a reason why no one wanted to quantify it because it just takes a lot of effort and we can go into the technical side of this but you know, we spent six weeks just gathering data yeah um yeah. and and that was a, a labor of love but also a very stressful experience because as you can imagine screenplays are are one of the art is getting dialogue from screenplays is not a structured data set at all um so so that was a fun experience um but also one that i felt was really just needed and to to improve and move forward the discussion that we were having around this topic. Yeah, uh, I think that's so. Great. Maybe you can briefly explain how you did because the data collection and analysis here looks like a daunting task. <laughs> like, how did you yeah. how did you collect this data and made sure that it had some some okay quality at least? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I have my own personal bar. This is not peer reviewed. This didn't go through the New York, uh, like a New York Times editor. And honestly, this project probably would have gotten shut down if it had gone through all mm -hmm, those channels. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. you know, I think my bar is pretty high in terms of quality. So that's what we worked with. Is like, would I would I accept these results if I saw them on the internet? Um, and I wrote a whole FAQ about like what's wrong with the data. Um, which we can talk a little bit about now, but in terms of gathering the data, um, the engineer I was working with, like, basically, was like, "You can't do this. This is too complicated." Um, <laughs> so I that had, was my as first impression as, too. Like, they can't have gone through all the script. I mean, you know, there must be like yeah. something else. And there, there. There's definitely errors. I mean, there's there's always errors. There's more errors in my analysis, or just methodologically, we're using screenplays, which already means there's uh, going to be issues with. Uh, how accurate that represents the film, which is obviously a product of the screenplay. So that alone means there's tons of errors. Uh, but, but if you accept that generally, there's not a huge, there isn't a consistent shift from the screenplay to the film. We, we still have directionally accurate data. Uh, but anyway, we chose to go with screenplays. Um, there's other ways to, to go about this. You could use on-screen dialogue, which means you'd have to watch the film and then categorize who's talking and how long they're talking. And you know, there, that's an option, but we chose to use screenplays. And the idea was, 
Uh, could you break down the screenplays by character? And then you would have to, once you had that, so we have the lead character has uh, 8,000 of the 12,000 words uttered in the screenplay. And then from there, we have to figure out, well, what gender is this lead character? Uh, and we methodologically went with uh, connecting the lead, the character name to an actor uh, on IMDb or like the cast list, and then the actor to a gender. Um, so that that was the 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 thread that was the thread through the needle that we needed to figure out was screenplays to characters to actors to genders and do that two thousand times and <laughs> with as little error as possible. So so that's that was the complexity of the project and the most amount of complexity was just in screenplays are formatted uniquely every single time. They're not always text files. They're sometimes PDFs. Yeah, they're made for humans, old, not for machines, right? So exactly, anything uh, and, can go. <laughs> and if you remember, if you're old enough, you know the acronym OCR, which is uh, taking pages that are scanned and converting them to computer readable text. Right. And you know, a lot of these movies are scanned PDFs from the '70s, so they're not rich text formatted. They're written in terrible fonts with like uh, noise in the scan, so little lines and like dots everywhere from whatever Xerox machine they used, and yeah, it's just like a very messy data set. So there was a lot of complexities getting it done, and that's why it took six weeks. Yeah, that's that's really quite good. I mean, yeah, I mean, it sounds incredibly laborious. And that that I mean, first of all, thanks for doing this. So now it's yeah, available, absolutely. and you know, people can work with that. And but the other thing is also practically like. How do you do that? So basically, you're building this data journalism platform right now and go into these really complex data investigations, do cool graphics. How how do you make that work from a financial standpoint? Uh, do you, like do you just you know try try to do something cool now and worry about that later, or do you get paid for the work already, or do you have a plan to get paid? Like how do you think this will play out? Um, I don't know. Right now, let's make cool things on the internet. <laughs> yeah. um, That's a good plan. I mean, yeah. yeah. I have, I mean, what I'm doing now was my side hustle to a full time job, and now I'm flipping it around. It's do this full time and find side hustles. So uh, I'm keeping the lights on. I'm still well fed. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, again, get to that point where I have someone else working with me on this full time potentially. And, you know, I'd love to grow to the size of a 538. Um, and you know, it, making money will probably be a lot like how they make money. Um, although they're completely subsidized by ESPN. I just so. wanted to say it's not clear either. I don't know. Yeah. This podcast has a sponsor. Who knows? I can oh, make, no. maybe. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, 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 I haven't quite figured that out yet. Um, so I'm scraping by just trying to make as, as many cool things as possible. Um, and you know, the spirit of all of these projects is, is take a question that, that has, has, has interesting, but very like anecdotal discourse around it and, and add some data to the discussion. So the timeless project was adding data to talk about, well, why do, why do some songs stand the test of time? And this film project was adding data to how do we even think about gender inclusivity and, and why there's imbalance in certain areas versus others. And then future projects will will try to move that even farther. And I do hope that one day I figure out how to pay for this and get sponsors. But for, for now, it's it's just a, an exercise in data gathering and and talking about culture in ways that I don't think has has been done quite the way that Polygraph has approached it. 
Oh yeah, I mean Matt, uh, I wish you all the best because the the work you are doing is is honestly amazing and uh, it really shows. It's it's a clearly a labor of love. Every single detail in your work is is just shows how much <laughs> effort there is behind that and uh, how much care. It, you, you can see how deeply you care about everything. It goes from the data analysis, data collection, the visuals, the narrative, everything is is fantastic. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank no, you. Seriously, Maybe I mean, can, I, I don't yeah. say that lightly. I'm, I'm really impressed by your work. It's, uh, it's oh, fun you. and it's uh, inspiring at the same time. Yeah, I'm trying to, I mean, the next projects, I think I'm even more excited about. Um, I've done a lot of music projects and I'm slowly inching away from doing more serious topics uh, that, that, again, have the same spirit of adding a little bit more definition and, and, and data around something that's pretty amorphous and culture. Uh, so, so thank you. And, um, it's only going to get better. Hopefully <laughs> I'm getting better at coding every day. So that's good. Yeah. We can't wait to see your next projects. Let us know. Yeah, when, absolutely. When they come out. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, a teaser, the next one is going to be on slavery in Ooh, the U S wow. which is wow. big, the big most, one. yeah, that's, uh, I'm moving from like, <laughs> No diggity yeah, in '90s yeah. music. It's a logical it's a progression, exactly. A logical progression, yeah. But it's um, it's it's honestly, I think, a good challenge because I'm taking a topic that has no, very little intrinsic interest publicly, and trying to make it um something that people will really lean into. So I'm taking it as a challenge of can I apply what I've done to music and film and a couple other topics, mostly pop culture related, to something that is very. Uh, nerdy, <laughs> more nerdy than the things I've done in the past. So uh, I, it's a good experiment and I think it'll be pretty worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. I think yesterday sifting through your website, I found a Trello board somewhere where you are annotating, keeping track of ideas. And it was like, oh yes, do this. Oh, this, this as well. <laughs> yeah, please do it. <laughs> so if there is anyone who aspires to work with you, what, what should this person do? Oh, like from a collaboration yeah, perspective? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very depressing state right now because <laughs> I can only move as fast as I can work. And I've been very, very aggressively trying to find ways to move faster involving more people. Mm -hmm. Um, so I absolutely encourage anyone to reach out to me at Matt at polygraph.cool, um, from an email perspective. Um, but really I, I, I need people who can essentially do the type of work that's on polygraph, which is heavy data visualization, writing design, like really the soup to nuts writing articles. Um, there's a lot of people who can do some of those things very well, like a, a developer or a designer or a writer. Um, but what I found is the best work is really people who can wear all those hats. So if you absolutely, like if, if, if you're one of those people who have three hat, three of the, those three hats on at the same time, um, you're probably a unicorn and we should work together. <laughs> Great. Uh, well, okay. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. I mean, we, we could go on forever <laughs> and, um, we are really looking forward to seeing what you are, what you publish next. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Much appreciated. Thanks, Matt. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, we have a request. If you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. 
And here's also some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're of course on Twitter at twitter.com slash data stories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash data stories podcast, all in one word. And we also have an email newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish an episode, you can go to our homepage datastory.es and look for the link that you find on the bottom in the footer. So one last thing that we want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or amazing people you want us to invite or even projects you want to us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So don't hesitate to get in touch with us. It's always a great thing for us. And that's all for now. See you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories. <music> This episode is sponsored by Car2DB. Car2DB is an open, powerful, and intuitive platform for discovering and predicting the key facts underlying the massive location data in our world. With Car2DB, analyzing and designing beautifully insightful maps has never been easier. Check out incredible location intelligence projects and get started for free at car2db.com slash gallery. That's C-A-R-T-O-D-B dot com slash gallery.